my token's or famous slogan is <laughs> I'm conscious of time. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. In today's episode, we talk to Janelle Hardy, who is a writer, artist, and host of the Personal Mythmaking Podcast. She's also the creator and teacher of a memoir writing course called The Art of Personal Mythmaking. This process uses body-based trauma-informed writing prompts, fairy tales, and themed modules to support creative people who are interested in healing from their life stories as they write their memoirs. Her work combines her BA in anthropology with her MA in dance plus her diploma in structural integration. She has been working as a trauma-informed body worker and as an artist for many years, and she's taught adults these important skills out of her living room, in art centers, universities, and community colleges. You'll hear all of that experience and her unique wisdom in this conversation, but definitely check out her podcast and her website, JanelleHardy.com, both of which are linked in our show notes. We love talking to Janelle about the work she's done, how to get out of your head and change your responses using myth and story, as well as somatic or body-based healing techniques. Working in this way is rare and transformative. One quick note is that the Zoom gods were not kind to us on this one, but there are only a few places where there are minor lags. So sorry for that. We really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. We're really excited to talk to you um, and we've been following your work for a while and we're, yeah, we're excited for all the directions that we can go with you. Maybe just to kick off, just introduce a little bit about kind of your work and really your practice. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my work is the art of personal mythmaking, which is a transformational memoir writing course that I teach online, both live once a year, every February. And also it's also available as a self-directed but supportive process anytime. And I also, a little bit behind the scenes, my current students get first dibs. And then, you know, if there's spots left, then I open it up to my wider audience. I also run um, really, really wonderful writing circles. Of course, I'm, I'm like singing my own praises, but, <laughs> so, but um, I really love running my writing circles and teaching my course. And so essentially my work is all about uh, working with life story and memoir writing, actually learning how to become a, a storyteller of your own life experiences um, through the lens and through the techniques of somatic healing, which is body-based healing, through um, cultural embodiment, which is using ancient tales like fairy tale and myth to help to guide the process, and of course, writing. I love it's it's very rare that people combine all of these things. Um, and I think if I had heard about it, say, five years ago or something, I would have no idea what you were talking about. So, um, but I think having done a lot of meditation in the last several years, I can kind of get to a point where there's a certain level of stress where I just know I need to kind of ground 
Um, but I'm curious about why you decided to take that approach and why you think it's important for writers to do. And, and I guess what's new about it, if I can just ask a super blunt question. Mm -hmm. um, so why I decided to take this approach of, I think you're really asking about the embodiment piece. The, the embodiment, but also the storytelling, like these sort of. Okay. The yeah, both. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Why? I mean, why are they connected, for example? Yeah. Okay. So, well, well, the way I can start with that is I studied anthropology and I've always had a, a clear sense that things aren't right societally and culturally, that we're missing pieces in our contemporary cultures and societies. And I very specifically speak from my own lived experience as a white woman in a col colonial country in Canada which has been created through colonization, which is a, a just a terrible, terrible process, which is ongoing, right? So, so these structures live with us culturally and societally, the, the values that found things continue to live on through our society, societies. And some of the symptoms of this disconnection, and so this is going to make sense, I I tend to talk and discuss in a, a kind of a spiraling fashion, but I promise it's going to make sense. A lot of the foundations of those values of conquest and oppression orient around teaching people to disconnect from our bodies. We are all born, anyone who's been around babies or little new creatures, you know, puppies, kittens, it's so clear that we're in our bodies and we're fully present inside our bodies. And that's how we start out in the world. And then we go through uh, an intense learning process of disconnection, dissociation, retreat into the cerebral and the intellectual and the rational and the thinking processes. And we're taught that that's the right way to exist and understand the world. We're taught that that's better than sourcing from our bodies, from feeling anything in our bodies from enjoying and also trusting our bodies and the senses guidance and insight that comes from mind and body being connected and whole so I often refer to this as the body psyche but most of us not all of us but most of us end up by adulthood just kind of little floating bobbleheads orienting to the world through how we think about it and how we perceive um, visually and into our thoughts and our other senses really get disconnected and ignored. The key to remember in this noticing and assessment about the, the dis-ease of current life and society is that this is not natural, even though we've been conditioned to think this way of being super heady and in our heads is natural that's not our birthright. Our birthright is actually to be deeply connected and embodied, to have our consciousness also inhabit our body, to have our powerful thinking minds be of service to what comes through body connection rather than how we're often taught is our body's just a vehicle to move our brain around um, and, and be a servant to us and somehow separate from us, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing which relates to inviting fairy tale and myth and ancient tales into our understanding in a way where we kind of surrender the need to figure everything out in our heads, but we open up to, oh, there are 
things in this life that have deep wisdom that I can actually allow myself to be guided by. So story is one of them. And we're all really story driven. Humans are story driven. I mean, we're on a podcast about writing what is writing, but sharing story and experience through story. We're meaning making creatures. We're always working with experience to try to create meaning. And we all come from cultures that didn't have the internet. <laughs> I mean, it's so astounding how life has changed even just in the last 15 years with social media. And I'm of the age where email and internet was still the thing that weird people did in high school. So I, I can still remember life before that. And it is astronomically different now. And this, this, but I do think this drive for connection that, that we all get sucked into isn't the sucked into part is the unhealthy expression of a healthy expression of a desire for connection and community and shared experience that we also in societies and communities these days don't have a lot of access to. But for millennia, I'll just describe a little scenario and it's not the caveman scenario. I don't like the like back in the day when we all lived in caves and men went out hunting. That's not that's not the story in my mind, yeah. but, but we come from and our nervous systems come from a deep inheritance of being very connected in terms of touch, in terms of proximity with a small community of people with a shared language and shared stories and intergenerationally. And knowledge transmission mostly did not happen through the literary arts because widespread literacy is a relatively recent phenomenon. So if you think even 150 years back, not everyone could read and write. That that was not, I mean, public education didn't even exist for, for the most part. So if you think of, well, so cultures and societies, what we take for granted now as a way of communicating and, and receiving knowledge and story and sharing it, that actually is super new. So the ways that cultural knowledge, um, identity, meaning making within community has traditionally been passed down in many different cultures is in small groups telling, orally telling stories in community over and over and different people telling the same story, but different versions coming through the different people and attached to season. So if, if we then assume that that's kind of the norm that a lot of feelings people have of, you know, something's not quite right. Why, why am I so lonely or anxious or depressed? Or like, I just, you know, I feel it. And a lot of people launch into these personal growth and spiritual paths, myself included. But I, I feel that these things we notice are symptoms of a breakdown of community and story is a really big part of that. The amazing thing with myth and fairy tale is some of these stories can be traced back through archaeological and linguistic studies to 6,000 years old. So then if you think about a story that is that old, many of them are shared cross-culturally, that has survived for that long, survived through the introduction of patriarchy, of, of different religious currents, of 
shifts away from sharing in community and getting together for rites of passage and still the stories exist, well, there's a lot of powerful story medicine and guidance that we can tap into when we decide to invite a story like that into our lives and have a relationship with it and thinking about repetition and returning to the story and letting it guide us. I love that. I have a lot of questions. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of different ways I could go. Megan, do you have an obvious direction that you wanted to take? No, I want to know where you're going. So I, I do. I wrote down like 17 different things just now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I mean, I was literally today with one of my best friends sending a voice memo and we were sort of talking about something and and Megan and I both took a class I think Megan took it um in college that was about oral tradition in religion and kind of looking at major religions and thinking about oral tradition and how like what an oral culture means is that like the most significant whatever is resonating to the society at that time is what is transmitted right and it kind of evolves over time and that sort of thing but there is like something that really resonates with the society that is being passed down with specifically about like the Bible and, you know, various things that I won't get into right now. But I think one of the things is what's interesting is we're sort of in this, in, like because of the internet and you, and you talk about it, but the internet is like a half oral medium, half textual medium. And so far as it's constantly evolving on one hand and on the other hand, I think because the internet is there and because we're so like not living, I mean, in your, in the way that you're talking about, um, you're not living in these communities that or communicating maybe in these communities. Like you might physically live in the same size of town, but your internet world is completely different, right? Or whatever. And you're not passing down. You're not hearing these older stories and things like that. And a lot of those older stories have been eradicated and or I was raised in a super religious background. Anything that wasn't literally based on the Bible wasn't passed down to me at all either, but obviously below the surface on a kind of subconscious level, those myths are still with you in a society, those pre-Christian myths or, you know, the way that people believe about how humans behave. It's like a comment. I don't think it's a question. I don't know if you have anything that you would like to say in response to my long speech about a topic that you're the expert on, but. Um. <laughs> I'm, well, I mean, expert is a, it's a lofty title. I know some things. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, the fun of this kind of exploration is just the sharing of ideas and curiosities and seeing where it leads us. Okay, another direction I will go and then I might surrender to Megan. Um, but I think one of the things, so the next project I'm going to do without getting in, into any details does touch on, and it's something maybe regretfully that I haven't explored sufficiently, um, is thinking about what it means to be from the type of background that I'm from in terms of settling and not just like clearly I'm American and um, my family lived, I grew up in West Texas. And so there's like, and they moved there fairly recently. So they're sort of not really recently, but basically post the initial settlement wave. So they kind of took over a place that had already been colonized in, a, in that way. Um, but they were also, they're like, um, from their Scottish Protestants that also got, they colonized North, um, Northern Ireland as well. So there's sort of a lot of generations of different types of colonialism based on religious 
fundamentalism, right? And you might think that these are sort of like they're the foot soldiers mm -hmm. of empire and what that means as well. Again, a comment from me and just something that I want to get into, but I think it's, I guess, people who are starting to grapple with their background of that type. What would you say? Oh, yeah. Okay. So keeping in mind that I'm a white woman also, uh, you know, in Canada because of colonization and settlement, I am not the expert on this, but I, I have a couple suggestions to offer. Um, which is that context is very important. And when we start to explore um, how it is that we end up where we are, that really does require looking into history and ancestry and, and trying to reclaim the stories that have often been wiped out uh, as a process of becoming white in a colonial country. So the other part of it is that uh, I highly recommend doing some really solid anti-bias and anti-racism work on yourself before starting to write and share about your experiences as they relate to these dynamics. Um, getting right with ourselves and our place in history as well as the here and now requires a lot of deep inner work for us white people, and it's painful. So what I can recommend is a really wonderful book by a, an American man named Resma Menachem. He's a black man from the States who speaks about race through the lens of the body and trauma healing. So he actually, his book is fantastic. I forget the subtitle, but it's My Grandmother's Hands, and it's currently a bestseller, so you'll probably see it in any independent local bookstore that you head to, which I recommend shopping from. And he yeah, offers very practical embodiment techniques that help to shift and heal certain responses that can be uh, reactive and defensive and problematic, when, especially with white folks learning about our place in history and, and how our existence contributes to racism. Another wonderful resource is a podcast series called Seeing White. It's by a podcast called Seen on Radio, S-C-E-N-E. -E. Um, and it's like, it's a special section within the bigger podcast. So the best thing is to Google Seeing White, Seen on Radio, and then you'll see all the episodes in it. And it's a really wonderful series, all about how the idea of whiteness was actually created. And really specific to your curiosity, what I think, and Resma Menachem also speaks to this. And, and what I've noticed in my own self inquiry, as a younger person, and still now is why don't I know who my people are? You know, one of the social contracts of becoming white, was a giving up of language, of culture, and of story, and of, of personal history. And so there's this kind of great forgetting in a lot of people where you don't even know anything past your grandparents. And for some people, they've never even met their grandparents or know much about their grandparents. And there's this, there's this really unacknowledged, ambigu ambiguous grief and confusion that comes out of 
the erasure of your origins as as this unspoken contract of becoming something so reclaiming that as well as doing that healing work is really important and i just want to reiterate i'm not an anti-racism educator by any means but those those resources i shared are really wonderful starting points and then from there you you know you find people on instagram and you just follow those rabbit holes and take courses and read books and then do the practice of changing your personal narrative about these histories because the, the stories and histories we learn are not the true ones. They're the ones that benefit whiteness and colonialism. And that is really, really worth untangling. Yeah. And I also, I, this isn't it's just like clarification on my side that I'm not, I don't want to write I don't think it's interesting or important for white people to write the, the, their own personal version of how they came to understand that they were colonialists. I think that's private work that needs to happen, but I mm -hmm. think that like, but it's something that I want to really grapple with before I approach the next project, if that makes sense. So. Um, yeah, completely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Megan. <laughs> well, so kind of following on from that, um, we, both have been talking a lot about some future projects. And we also spoke a back in the fall with uh, Beth Wetmore. She wrote the book Valentine, which is set in West Texas in the 1970s and deals with, um, it opens with a, the assault of a young Mexican American woman and then deals with the response of the white community to that assault and how they kind of come to terms with it. But as we, one of the things that we talked about was how long it took her to, I mean, decades to get to the point where she could write the book the way it needed to be written because she had to make peace with where she came from. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm back um, at my parents for a couple of weeks. And this is a town that I left as soon as I could and never considered coming back to. I mean, obviously I come back to see them, but I... I'm grateful for wearing a face mask out in public because it means I'm incognito. <laughs> I'm not going to run anyone, anyone. And, you know, I'm 40 years old and I still really, I feel like a, a 16 year old here in my feelings mm. towards this town. And I'm, I'm not the only person, but so not necessarily specifically like for me, but just in general, um, what are some of the things that you do? Because whether you're writing memoir or you're writing fiction or you're writing poetry or anything you're writing from your experience and a lot of people writing is a way especially if you're not writing for a publication uh is a way to make peace with your own experience and I think this falls into your personal myth-making umbrella mm -hmm. and ways that you you do kind of begin that long work of making peace with where you're from in order to you can, there are, you know, writers, and we talk about this a lot, like there's the writing you do about your experience that's just for you to kind of sort it out. And then there's the writing that you do later that is not so much confessional, but it is a way of sharing it that is for public and that there's like a huge difference uh, between the two things. Yeah. yeah. So I think this is the work. <laughs> this is our life's work is making peace with our circumstances and growing through that. I don't think it's a small thing. And I imagine 
that being back in a place you left as fast as possible and feeling like you're 16 again and really feeling relief being able to wear a mask and be a little incognito means there's a lot to explore, right? (laughs) (laughs) And And you know there's a lot to explore because probably, you know, your heart starts to pound more. Um, your thoughts might get squirrely or shape shift. So you're less able to focus. You might, um, either start to notice you sort of, you feel really small and young, perhaps, or you sort of freeze up or alternately, you know, and this depends on our, the ways in which we, um, our nervous system habitually responds to a sense of threat, you might, you might have a tendency to, to freeze up, or you might start to feel irritated and grumpy and snarly, or you might just have this unbearable urge to bolt and get the heck out of there, which is why you left, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love how you take everything and your immediate response is not what you're thinking, but it's like naming physical sensations as a comment. Yeah. You're welcome to <laughs> expand on that. <laughs> it's So it's what I do is really yeah. um, orient towards being body centric. And, and this is an active choice to move into embodiment and out of thinking. And I, I tend towards a freeze state of shutting down and like, you know, really needing to say something, but feeling so distressed at the, thought of saying something I go into the shutdown or you know I used to be extremely shy so I'd get incredibly bright red in the face which would distress me more and had I'd head quicker to shut down because the excruciating thought of trying to to speak something when my face is red and people are staring at me and I'm about to burst into tears right so If I only stay in my head about these responses that are physical, I'll make up all sorts of stories that usually involve other people and external circumstances and don't involve an opportunity for me to learn how to heal and and shift that response pattern so that I'm actually more empowered to be able to speak up. So if I orient always towards my head, I, I keep staying stuck because we're, our brain is always trying to make sense of things. And on the one hand, I'm all about meaning making and storytelling and claiming and owning our own experiences. On the other hand, there's a danger when, we're, when we don't get support to source from our body and be guided by our body. There's a danger that if we notice what our body's trying to say, which is always through sensation, our thinking brain will spin a strange story and persuade us to believe in it that is not of service to us, that usually keeps us stuck in these uncomfortable loops. And then we develop coping mechanisms, like maybe isolating ourselves too much or, you know, whatever it is, moving constantly from community and home to community and home and never getting a chance to establish the relationships that you long for or whatever it is, right? Can you talk about the difference between what you're talking about and what I do, which is I make up a lot of good, like I understand that there are bad stories. Like all these people are staring at me and I look like an idiot and whatever. And I'm able to understand that that is not helpful. And my personal so far therapeutic technique is 
like basically different mantras. I was writing Megan about this today of about something else, but uh, make up a different story that is still just a story in my head um, that is like, no one actually cares. No one's looking at you, right? So the difference between mm-hmm. coming up with a potentially better story that is still your head um, versus the embodied response. Yeah, okay. What you do is helpful. So if it helps, don't stop. <laughs> But what what I can add is if you invite your body into that process, there will be more shift and transformation. And at some point, you won't need to keep contradicting the story, the old uncomfortable story with the new, more positive story. There won't be as much of a back and forth battle to correct the story. If you invite your body in, you'll actually change your responses so that you're less likely to go into the old story at all. Okay, let's just use my example. I used to be shy. I'm not anymore. But when I was shy, what would happen is it, uh, I, w- I would always kind of be hanging out in the background because I was shy. Shyness is also fear of social judgment, right? So all those thoughts about being judged, all those honestly fairly egotistical thoughts that people were noticing me to the degree that they'd be constantly judging me were running through my head. Of course, That's usually not true. People aren't directing that much attention to you all the time, but our heads can really convince us of things. So back when I was shy, I I wouldn't really be participating in the social flow because of the shyness. And then I might get up my courage to try to say something. It would take so much effort to say something that by the time I blurted it out, I'd I'd be emotional because of that effort, either angry or tearful. And the second people turned their attention onto me, I'd start to blush. So whatever I was trying to continue to get out of my mouth, I would shut down and I'd retreat. So if I only create a different story of, in my head of, it's okay, they're not judging you, you can participate, that would be a little bit helpful. But my whole body is telling me through the sensations and the symptoms well before I try to engage with the group, my whole body is telling me that I'm in danger, that there's a threat. And no matter how much I say the other thought, the other idea, my body only understands a nervous system response of activation. And so the clues to that are some of the things I described. So kind of a a bit of a contracted musculature, a really tense clenched jaw, spinning thoughts, self-judgments, kind of also being generated through all of this tension in my system. All of that is an example of an activation in my nervous system at some point in the past, and then probably more than once because the shyness created this vicious cycle of, of repetition of that pattern. And what my nervous system understands is danger and activation like ramping up into distress so kind of more of a a fight response but also holding this frozen freeze response so foot on the gas and foot on the brakes is all going on inside my system while my head is doing its other thing so if I don't tend to all of these physical sensations that are saying you're getting activated, you're heading towards overwhelm, which you know we can also use the word trauma and trauma response. Sometimes we, you know, we don't necessarily always have 
an event or an experience to say that was the trauma. It's just an accumulation of stressors, in my case, with a highly sensitive system. So if I stay in the realm of the two different stories and trying to move myself into the more positive one, what I'm also doing is with my thinking mind, I'm really overriding all of that nervous system response. And um, that's trying to tell me that I actually need to back up and learn how to have an activation cycle complete itself and release the charge. Learning how to tend to what my body is saying through these experiences so that I don't go into a real shutdown and then release that discharge so that I get to a calmer state means I'm far less likely to live in the land of assuming no one likes me and it's really distressing to engage socially and will more naturally shift towards the other belief that I've been trying to tell myself that I'm welcome, that no one's really paying that much attention to me, that no one's really going to judge me. And all of that really comes from from making the body the first place that I tend to rather than the place that I always suppress. Thanks. That makes a lot of sense. I, so I did, you did a webinar last summer uh, with Jessica Abel, um, who we've had on before too, um, about exactly that. In fact, when you said foot on the brake, foot on the gas, I was like, oh, I remember how much that like made an impact then. And then I have it was such a good reminder because it completely, you know, these things make mm-hmm. an impact. You remember them and then you get overwhelmed again and then they go. So, um, but what a great image that was. And thinking about things like there are times when, you know, as a writer, you're, you're working on something, even if it's just your own personal journal and those physical sensations come up and it makes it hard to even want to, you know, I think we avoid we avoid working on things or writing. I, I should never use like assume, but I avoid even writing in my private journal about things because I don't want to go through those physical experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess what you've, you've answered that part, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you do when you're working with your writing circles and with clients and through your programs. But as sort of a segue, I guess I kind of wanted to get into a little bit more of just what our what we explore a lot of times with our podcast is just sort of the specifics of just kind of what does mm-hmm. that look like for you? Like what does a how does running that kind of business fit with your own personal creative practice? And just, you know, for people, we have a small writing group that we started that is such a lifeline. And so I, you know, and have been part of some other um, circle kind of things too. And, you know, so I know just how really great that like and fulfilling those can be. So I guess just kind of on a more practical material practicality rather than physical, you know, emotional stuff, like how do, mm-hmm. how does this work? How do you set your priorities and how do you make sure that you can protect your creative practice around mm-hmm. business things that are probably yeah. feeding your practice and make it essential, but yeah. also can. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, a, it's challenging. <laughs> um, I, my daughter's 18 now and I've been a solo parent for her whole life. And so a lot of 
and juggling jobs, just, you know, getting by and figuring things out. And so sometimes it depends on our stage of life and what, what other demands are on us. Sometimes my, my creative work, which I, I write a lot, but I also do painting and used to do a lot of dance. So it's for me, the creative world is my playground and the different mediums depend on what I'm feeling pulled towards. But as long as I get to do creative things, I feel good, right? So some of it is like, oh man, it's easy to sacrifice this because it seems like it's easy to sacrifice. But if I don't do my creative whatevers, I suffer. I don't feel good in myself, which affects the whole rest of my life. So sometimes it was squeezing little chunks of creative into nooks and crannies where I could after I got my daughter to bed or we had a routine of um, Sundays were art days where we would just set things up and put on some fun podcasts and spend the afternoon doing that. And that was more about together time than my own personal projects because there's some things you need, you just need to not be around other people for. So sometimes there's compromise. And now I'm actually at a stage where my daughter's a grown up and, you know, I'm still a solo parent, but it's very different. It's way less labor intensive. And I, and now I have way more time available. And I am very capable of procrastinating and putting, you know, putting off and getting sucked into perfectionism and all the things that can block us. But because I have these somatic tools, these body tools from my work as a body worker and my continuing education and the way that it helps me stay in creative flow is that I am so much more attentive to my body psyche, my physicality and sensations that arise that rather than having a spinning head and feeling blocked for months, which used to happen often, I'm attuned enough to myself that the first little sneaky sensations that hint that I'm heading towards block, um, which could be a little pattern of worry that I'm familiar with starts to spin in a loop. And along with that is a bit more bloating in my belly and and then a kind of a little subtle habit of not breathing quite as fully. And I noticed that, I go, okay, <laughs> hi, you're not my friend, friend. <laughs> I see you. I'm not going to let you sweep me away into this world of uncomfortable creative block. You know, really viewing my relationship with my body as a way to also stay in relationship with my creativity and my body as giving me this these clues and kind of desperately trying to say, Janelle, Janelle, you know, like you're getting stuck. Come, come back and, and we're going to unstick ourselves. And because of that, I find that I'm blocked far less. I'm much more able to untangle perfectionist thoughts. For example, I'm much more willing to make mistakes and make bad creative work, um, which is essential and used to be very hard for me. And then, you know, whether bad, not bad, who cares? I just need to be doing it. And I'm much more able to feel okay with tiny chunks of time being 
what I've got and having that actually be productive for lack of a better word. Like it's amazing what we can do in 15 minutes with a timer. If we let ourselves believe that it's possible, it's amazing what we can do when we're not in the mood, but we say, okay, I've got these 15 minutes. I don't feel like it, but I know this is what I want to do. I know I'll feel better after. So let's just see what happens. And it's usually way better than what we think. So I'm, I kind of got a little rambly, but I think my main point is when we cultivate a commitment to healing and a commitment to being led by what our body is telling us, everything else benefits. I don't think you got rambly at all. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. So yeah. mean, we get rambly, so we're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have like a million other things, but I definitely wanted to ask you about the perfectionism thing, but you've definitely touched on that just now. And that sort of loop uh, and everything that you say makes makes a lot of sense to me. And it's for me, like if I, even without any kind of training and we haven't worked together or anything, but like, if you listen to your body, you can also access some level of instinct. I think it's important to work with people like yourself who have done deeper work and can, can give you some insight into how that works. But you know, just as a starting point, you don't have to sign up for a class or anything yeah. like that. You just need to sort of sit and try to be there with those sensations. Yeah. Yeah. Something as simple as committing that when you have to pee or poo, you actually go instead of holding it in. Yeah. Yeah. I and once it- read something that was something <laughs> like, you know, that thought where it's like, okay, if I just finish this email, then I can pee or whatever. And, (laughs) and then it's like, why are you using your basic body functions as reward system? Like it's actually not very good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) People do that all the time. Yeah. It's like, well, we're taught to in the school system. Yeah. Yeah. What clearer, like what clearer message of you, your, you and your body are not as important as this other thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you don't, uh, and, yeah. and you don't need any sort of teacher or healer or, or course to start playing with that level of, huh, my body's saying something. I'm going to listen. I'm going to do it and not override myself. Yeah. And I think doing that kind of work has shifted, even if you listen back to some of our old episodes. Uh, Megan and I, I think initially, I mean, this whole thing is like a long, you know, we're all growing all the time, but I think early on it was like, how do you know if you're being kind to yourself or you're just being lazy, right. Or something. And Mm. I think, (laughs) you know, that question, I mean, now I don't think that that is an urgent question so much for me anymore, but that was definitely something that early on, especially because initially our theme was sort of about day jobs and writing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, should you, well, okay, okay, let's go here. Um, There's a lot of discourse in the day job writing discussion, any Twitter thread, if you look at it, it's like, well, I got up at 5am every day and like stopped sleeping or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's, I guess what you did, it's not inherently wrong necessarily, but like that kind of hustle culture Mm -hmm. is not useful. No, and and it's it's a symptom of white supremacy and it's a symptom of colonial processes and it's a symptom of a constant overriding and for some rare people that is their natural cycle in the day great wonderful but it that's not how it works for everyone but we're taught that that's virtuous 
Yeah. We're taught that rest is wrong, that rest is lazy, that pushing hard and overriding and growth at all costs is the thing to do. And that's, it's simply wrong. But it takes a lot of unlearning for us because that's what we're all stewed in, you know? Yeah. I've actually been trying, like looking in the internet, even the framing of that whole juxtaposition of day job versus writing and writing full time and all of that is a very white discourse for the most part. But like, particularly that is there's something inherently like white supremacist in that conversation, I think. Yeah. And that's also a Protestant work ethic, right? So there's always complex layers overlapping of where we get these, where we embody these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. But I think to sit to your point, Olivia, that like that the privilege of being able not to have the discourse of like, Although the discourse of day job versus writing and how can we make it better um, is a valuable one. And it's, but also the privilege of being able to more intense, you know, somatic work if you can. Um, it is a, a white, you know, a lot of those structural privileges are white supremacist structures. But if you can do it, it's, it's always good to do it because doing it can help dismantle and make it easier or more accessible for other people who are outside of those power structures or who are oppressed by those power structures. So it's good to have, to continue to have the discourse as long as it's oriented um, toward dismantling and not toward like perpetuating. Yeah. <laughs> virtue posturing about how early you right. wake up, right? Or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to check if there's anything that you wish we'd asked you about or anything that you want to cover that we haven't covered? No, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. I, I'll just add some other ways you can work with body. And these are, these are also hard to access in contemporary society, but we're very much a part of everyday life in, let's say, like a few hundred years ago in small contained intact communities is dancing, singing, walking a lot, being more active than we are, especially walking, standing up, squatting down, like varied movement and connection intergenerationally and play. This is all really good for nervous system and self-regulation and social regulation, all of which benefits our creative work and our healing journeys. I, yeah, I love that. And yeah. I would also plug, I mean, your podcast is great um, as a good starting point. Oh, um, and your episode 61, I forget what it's called, but it was uh, one of the episodes that you do on your own on your podcast. And like your interviews are also good, but um, that is a really good introduction to, I think, your work as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, but I really, I love that you do such deep work and I, it's like very unusual and such a, it's great. And I'm excited to see what else you do basically. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Uh, yeah. So thanks for being on our podcast. So yeah, we usually say that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, a total you. delight. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign up form is on our website. 
And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Scotty Cody Casca. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Not everyone does that on podcasts, but like, oh, please, can I see you while we're talking to each other? <laughs> yeah. I love that. 